Father, we are mindful as we remember the accounts in your word of revelation by the sovereign movement of your spirit invading this time and space and this world and this realm in which we live with a gracious revelation of who you are to the saints who've gone before. We think about those times and might sometimes wish that we were Isaiah in that temple vision and seeing you high and lifted up upon your throne as we've just sung, as we consider Abraham and the visitation on his journey from Canaan and how he erected an altar to commemorate that moment when God visited him on his journey. And then we turn to your word and we realize that we have in your inscripturated truth here a sovereign visitation as it were. We only pray that the same Holy Spirit that so moved the authors of scripture would open our eyes to realize the revelation of your nature, your character, your sovereign work through history, your salvation provided for us and the glorious majesty of all these things. We pray that the eyes of our understanding and the ears of our spiritual hearts would be open to realize, to comprehend, to appreciate and to proclaim Lord to the lost, the marvelous deeds of our God through history. As we turn to your scriptures, we thank you, Lord, that there is so much there contained for us to dwell upon and to dig out the treasures of your sovereign revelation through the course of your work. I thank you, Father, for those that you have commissioned to write in scripture, songs in the Psalter, Lord, revelation to the churches and the epistles, the history of your people throughout the old covenant, the gospels which record the word of our Lord Jesus himself, the prophecies yet future of the consummation of this entire realm, Lord, to bring glory to your holy name, the promise of eternal hope and a new heaven and new earth, and most of all, the cost that made all of this possible, the price that Christ our Lord paid on Calvary, and then the signal event that sealed his work when he rose again. And we thank you that he ever reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father, watching over his plan until all things bow the knee before his sovereign lordship. Open our ears again, we pray, and use this word to unto your glory in the hearts of the hearers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn our attention to God's holy word, and I pray that the Lord would open our ears again to understand. Would you, in your scriptures, turn to Psalm 96 today as we consider this psalm in our Psalm of Month series? The title of this morning's message is Great Commission Anthem, a song that anticipates the events and the commands of the Great Commission. The aim of this morning's message is to convey Old Testament or Old Covenant instructions for the church to follow with New Testament clarity. There are commandments, instructions for the church to make known, to broadcast, to publish, to publicize the mighty works of our Lord. And when we take this into account with New Testament clarity, considering the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a powerful combination indeed. So out of reverence for God's word, would you stand once more this morning? And behold the scriptures in your ears as they are proclaimed to us today from Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. Here we have the holy word of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. 
Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In preaching the Psalms, There's one commentary that has perhaps been the most valuable to me, and it's called The Treasury of David. It's a commentary by Spurgeon on the Psalms, but he also includes towards the end of each of his uh, chapters, each one covering one of the Psalms, a long list of quotes from other uh, men faithfully proclaiming the Word of God and what they have gleaned from the Scriptures. When I was reading this, Uh, book today or earlier this week in preparation for today's message, I found a quote from Spurgeon that I thought I'd like to pass along to you in introduction to studying this text. Spurgeon comments on the placement of Psalm 95 and Psalm 96 in the Psalter, noting of Psalm 96, our text today, the following quote, it follows fitly upon the last Psalm which describes the obstinacy of Israel. Let me pause there. Reminding you in Psalm 95, this instruction was toward the end of that chapter. Verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the truth, proof, though they had seen my work. We talked about the obstinacy. We talked about the rebellion of the people of God who having seen such glorious revelation of God's power and their deliverance from Egypt now doubted him in the wilderness in spite of God's manifold works among them. Spurgeon says, again, it follows fitly that this last Psalm, which describes the obstinacy of Israel and the consequent taking of the gospel from them, that it might be preached among the nations who would receive it. He goes on, and in due time, be fully one to Christ by its power, It thus makes a pair with the 95th Psalm. It is a grand missionary hymn. What Spurgeon is recognizing is God's sovereignty in the history of salvation and the message of the gospel. There would come a time where the hardness of those who were the immediate heirs of the gospel, the Jewish state themselves, ethnic Israel themselves, the hardness of their heart would actually sovereignly pave the way for the gospel to go forward to all the nations. This is no surprise to the authors of Scripture, and especially no surprise to the Holy Spirit himself, 
who anticipated these very events by inspiring Psalm 96. Psalm 96, I think, could be aptly titled Great Commission Anthem, or in the words of Spurgeon, a missionary hymn. Why? Because it proclaims a day when the gospel will go forth to affect all the corners of the earth, all the coastlands, all the Gentile nations, all the peoples, all the families on this world will eventually see testimony of God's mighty works. And this was the theme of Psalm 96. This is a theme of this great song. The historical occasion, is, there's a kind of a historical moment more particular than this that also provides context for the psalm, and it is instructive as well. We find most of the psalm recorded in conjunction with the return of the Ark of the Covenant to a prominent position of the people of God under the reign of King David. So mark this in your notes, or if you have a copy, it should be in that first paragraph. 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 34. 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 34. That's a segment in a larger song that David commissioned for the event where the Ark of the Covenant that had been prior to in obscurity is now returning to a place featured prominently and there's a restoration of worship in the people of God. And almost word for word, Psalm 96 fits within that greater song. So Psalm 96 attends this historical event. It is therefore clear that David does not consider the restoration of worship in Israel or the return of the ark to be a mere parochial occasion. What does parochial mean? pertaining only to the experience of those people or that region. That is to say, David considers the event of the ark, the advent of the worship of God among the people to be an event of global, cosmic, historic, and prophetic importance. And this much is true as we see the rest of the scripture unfolding. He commemorates these moments, David does, with a sweeping anthem, of the universal reach of Yahweh's kingdom. We've commented that we're in a portion of the Psalter where the overriding theme is the extent of the kingdom of I am, Yahweh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. What is the reach of his rule? What is the extent of his reign? What does he own? What does he control? This song fits well into a collection that proclaims the extent of his kingdom. It is universal. So David commemorates these moments, drawing our attention to such things. And in so doing, he calls everyone, everywhere to attention. Everyone, everywhere. All nations, all peoples, from beginning of time into the future, if he could assemble them to draw their attention to this moment of the worship of the one true God, he would do so, and his words yet do so today as we read them. This uh, Psalm 96 anticipates milestone events, yet future that will fulfill the promise to Abraham. I bring that up because we're also in a Genesis study as well. You remember the promise to Abraham? That God would make of him a great nation. And through him, remember post-Babel, Abraham would be a light. He would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Psalm 96 anticipates the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. It also foretells the spread of the gospel through the church age. That's our age. By preaching or anticipating the preaching to the Gentiles of the hope of salvation in Christ alone. It's saturated, Psalm 96 is, with faith that the coastland peoples, I bring this up again because of the Genesis reference, the prophecy of Noah, that the coastland peoples, that is the tents of Japheth, would one day dwell 
and the tents of Shem, the covenant line. And through his significant son, this would be made possible. Psalm 96 is saturated with faith that the coastland peoples will be reached with the glorious advance of God's redemptive purposes in the fullness of salvation's history. And now as we turn to the psalm itself, we can recognize a certain structure to it, perhaps around four major instructions. Psalm 96 is structured around four imperatives to broadcast the glory of God to the ends of the earth. A heading, Psalm 96 instructs true, true worshipers to the following. So Psalm 96 instructs true worshipers to sing to the Lord and sing all the earth. Sing to the Lord all the earth. He instructs true worshipers to declare His glory among the nations. The first point is verses 1 through 2, second verses uh, 3 through 6. Third point, we are instructed to ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, 7 through 9. And fourthly, this morning, we're instructed to say, among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now, in each of these instructions, there's kind of a two-part uh, division there. There's an attitude, if you will, and an amplitude. Do you like my clever use of alliteration? Attitude and amplitude. So when the psalmist exhorts us to sing to the Lord, that's an attitude. He's answering the question, what are we to convey through our attitude or our proclamation of the truth of God? Well, in singing to him, we are to convey his glories through that medium as one example. But there's an amplitude as well. What does amplitude mean? That means the power, the range, the reach, the scope. How far should those songs be sung? Should they be um, restrained or constrained to a little people here or there, or to a microcosm of the world as a whole to be hidden under a bushel, as it were? No, sing to the Lord all the earth, attitude, amplitude. Secondly, declare his glory. That's the attitude, declaring the glory of God, and again, amplitude among the nations. How far should this message reach? And so on and so forth. So basically, that's the structure and outline that uh, I will be considering our text today in our message. So let's go through it a little more closely. Psalm 96, first of all, instructs true worshipers to sing to the Lord and to sing to the Lord in, in issuing this call to worship. He extends it by way of amplitude over the whole earth. Consider verses 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Since this is a poem, since this is a song, let me note one aspect of symmetry and poetic element that is here. There's a three-time re repeated phrase, sing to the Lord in this section. But there's three uses of three or, uh, in the psalm, if you will. If you go to verse 7, we have a three-part uh, exhortation to ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord of families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. So, so far the psalmist has addressed human beings in the context here, uh, bidding them to sing and calling them to ascribe to the Lord. But then he extends that call even to nature 
And he says three times, let nature do something as well. Verses 11 and 12, let the heavens be glad, let the seas roar, and let the field exalt. So three groups of three. And so in this poetic device and in this symmetry and in this kind of building a cumulative case of glory, we can see even by this device that this call is something that the author wants to reiterate and magnify. He in the language that he's choosing and even the literary devices that he is deploying, he sees the ripple effects of this song extending to the ends of the world, to all of creation, as it were, from the peoples of the earth, even unto the heavens, the seas, the fields, and the trees of the forest. Sing to the Lord all the earth, attitude, amplitude. What kind of song? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. This concept of a new song is prevalent from time to time in Scripture. It is advocating a kind of worship which acknowledges the unfolding of God's revelatory acts through covenant history. Perhaps you could illustrate it by asking this question, do we have more to sing about as we see God's movement through the course of His works in history, I believe the psalmist answers yes. He illustrates as much in the historical psalms, uh, or other authors, if it's a different one, illustrate as historical psalms. There are events that are included in song in Psalm 78, I believe, is one, and they get longer, uh, or, and they tend to be the longer psalms, with the exception of Psalm 119, among the longest where the record of God is commemorated in this poetic form. But there are events toward the end of that timeline of God's work that required a new song because up to that point they hadn't taken place in history yet. So this new song idea recognizes that God's works are unfolding through history, that He is the sovereign who by His decree reveals His glory incrementally in unfolding matter manner from seed to flowering tree. This is pictured in the parables of the New Testament as well. When we think of the kingdom of God compared to a mustard seed, we look at that mustard seed under the microscope and we can't see roots and branches. We can't see the birds flocking to nest in its shelter. But if we plant the seed and wait, we see over time the purposes that are built in that potential energy becomes kinetic, if you will, and God's purposes explode. And then we go back and we view the tree and we see that we need almost a telescope if it's big enough to note all of the different animals that, you know, take refuge in it and all that's going on in that planting event. This is a picture of the kingdom of God unfolding, flowering, blossoming, bearing fruit in history. And the kind of worship that's advocated in Psalm 96 recognizes, takes note, and ascribes glory to the God who is sovereign over events that are, yes, yet unfolding before our eyes today that point to an author and finisher of our faith and a God who in His glorious unfolding is manifesting His nature, His character, and His plan of salvation across the long arc of world history. So that's why we're singing this kind of song. There's also a purpose. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. 
when we consider the glories of the Lord, and if you just took your highlighter and marked them all down, it would be the, the uh, reasons to bless the Lord are greatly magnified just in these 13 verses, let alone all of Scripture, which the author would have us behold. As you consider his splendor, his majesty, his strength, his beauty, the fact that he is feared above all gods such that they are worthless in his sight, that he has established a way, a means for reconciliation that a man might be in right standing before him if his sins are atoned for by sufficient sacrifice. If we recognize that by him the world is established and movable, steadfast, that by his decree order is established and restored when he, the perfect judge with his perfect law, establishes the terms and parameters and ethical norms whereby we can have a thriving flourishing relationships, even between individuals in this world and so on and so forth, we find more and more reasons to bless His name. In blessing His name, we bless the particular name of Yahweh, the Lord, the high, holy, exalted name of the Lord, celebrated in Psalm 96.1. I've noted in a prior sermon that Psalms 92 through 107 all include the name Yahweh, prominently right at the beginning. The first verse, the first stanza, if you will, drawing our attention to the glories of the covenant-keeping God. The self-contained, non-contingent, self-sufficient, holy, awesome one. He is the one that we bless. There's a kind of song, it's a new one, there's a purpose to bless His name, and there's a theme. We are in verse 2, to tell of His salvation from day to day. Now, this plays into the aim of this message. Old Testament instructions for the New Testament, or for the church to follow with New Testament clarity. When we answer this question, what salvation do we have to sing about? We have the New Testament revelation. We can sing of the salvation of Jesus Christ who has come, who has died, who is buried, who rose. Whoever reigns, rules, and submits all his enemies and places them under his feet in his purposes, in his session, that is his continual rule from the right hand of the Father. And so we have a story of salvation to tell that is beautiful in its contours and is filled out with New Testament revelation. And in this way, again, Psalm 96 anticipates the Great Commission. This is, in the title of the message, a Great Commission anthem, or in the words of Spurgeon, a grand missionary hymn, is it not? Kind of song, purpose, and theme. His salvation, the great commission, the gospel heralds of good news should be inspired by passages like this to go forth to the distant peoples, to the families of the earth, to the far corners, to the coastlands, to the tents of Japheth, as it were, and declare that the Lord is worthy of praise to bless His name and to tell of his salvation from day to day. That's our first instruction from Psalm 96, church, uh, equipping us and giving us words to sing to the Lord and commanding all the earth to do so. Secondly, Psalm 96 instructs true worshipers to declare his glory among the nations. Verses 3 through 6, again, attitude, declare his glory, amplitude, among the nations. <clears throat> what are we to convey? His glory. 
To what extent are we to proclaim it among the nations? What is God's glory? Or what are we to associate with this concept of the glory of God? Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For the great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Let's pause for a moment and consider the concept of the glory of the Lord. This declaration of his glorious, of his glory, uh, uh, glorious characteristics is to be proclaimed among all the nations. What is the glory of the Lord? Or what do we associate with the glory of the Lord? I've often said uh, kind of a three-part distinction is helpful for me anyway. When we think of God's glory, think of his worth, his works, and his attributes. Let me illustrate with a little story. I was preparing for a message years ago. I used to do so in this, we call it the prayer cabin in back of my woods or whatever. And so I had just been in Romans and I was going back and forth and working out uh, some of these truths of God's sovereignty and salvation and so forth. And I finally get my study done. It's been several hours and I have my Bible under my arm and I hike out of the woods. And sure enough, at my uh, sister and brother-in-law's place, which is next door to mine, a car was sitting there in the driveway and they rolled down the window and tried to give me some literature, which I took and turns out they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And, they, and I said, that's funny, I was just studying Romans. They said, what were you studying? I said, I was studying God's sovereignty and salvation. That God is glorified in our salvation because it is His work alone that saves us. And they balked at that. And they said, uh, we are, no, that, that's not true. And, and one guy was particularly belligerent and he said, you don't even know what the glory of God is. That's just an abstraction. It's just a concept. And I was really fired up because I had been kind of studying for a while. And so I did the first thing that came to my mind, just pointed to the house. And I said, I built that house. And, uh, and I said, well, full disclosure, I just took the glory for something and I lied. You see, if I claim to build that house, I am ascribing glory to myself. But the fact is, I didn't. And I can't remember how pointed or direct I was. Hopefully, I used a little bit of grace. But I said, that's just like you, pointing your salvation and saying, I did that. You're stealing the glory and you're lying. There is no salvation by the works of man. There is only salvation by the work of Christ alone. And this is the kind of glory that we are proclaiming to the world. Not a glory that holds back in part a little bit, whereby we can boast, no. But the kind of glory that Paul declared when he said, if I boast in anything, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ alone. It is the works of the Lord and it is the worth of the Lord and his attributes which deserve all our attention, all our accolades, all our worship, all our compliments, if you will. It is him that we proclaim. And we are to proclaim him among the nations, among all the peoples. There's a con Turn to 1 Samuel 5. There's a contrast between the glory of the Lord and the idols of the people. In the example I gave you, we are tempted sometimes to set up ourselves as an idol, <clears throat> to point to ourselves as worthy of some kind of glory because of what we accomplished. Well, you know the history of idolatry in Scripture, don't you? There are many things foolish, every one of them as foolish as the next that man ascribed glory to. But Psalm 96 declares that God's glory is to be proclaimed among the nations 
For he is great, verse 4, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. One of my favorite stories to illustrate the contrast between the gods of the peoples and the glory of the Lord comes again by way uh, of an account in 1 Samuel 5 that includes the Ark of the Covenant. Note 1 Samuel 5, 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, remember, the Ark is the place of the resting, or it's the resting place, if you will, the point of contact with God's glory. So God's glory is associated with the Ark at this time. The Philistines, the bad guys, the enemies of the people of God have stolen it. And they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashod. Verse 2. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Hey, uh, kids, who, who was Dagon? Does anyone know? A god. A, a statue, yep, an idol, a statue, an idol. What would you say, Israel? False. A false god in the shape of a fish? Yes, and who worshipped Dagon, kids? Who worshipped Dagon, this false god? The, that's correct, the Philistines. Okay, so here we have set up, right? We have in the same place, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which is associated with the presence of Yahweh, the mighty God. And we have it right inside this pagan temple to Dagon, this stupid fish god carved out of a rock or whatever. So what's going to happen? Does anyone know? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> you are correct. Let's read. And the people of Ashad rose early the next day. Behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. What's going to happen the next day, kids? Fall down again? When they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face forward, downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And someone said his head was going to fall off. It says, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. <laughs> That's awesome. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashad to this day. The idiots are still worshiping this uh, stone block fish uh, thing. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashad. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashad and its territory. And when the men of Ashad saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. What a perfect illustration of Psalm 96.4. Yahweh, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. The Lord with his sword, as it were, slashed the head and hands from this idol and collapsed it in the temple of the pagan idolaters over and over again to illustrate that when the presence of God is, comes in contact with the idols of man, he demonstrates that they are worthless and he is the only one to be feared. A fool fears Dagon. A wise man fears the God who made the clay that Dagon is constructed of and designed the human and allowed him to be born that decided to worship that stupid idol that gives breath in the lungs of the Philistines that made the land for them to dwell that allows rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is the one to be feared. After all, verse 5 says, but the Lord 
made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So we see that God's glory is manifest by his works. We see that he is to be feared, especially by contrast with the false gods. And also we see fear by splendor. We are to fear the Lord, respect him, to tremble before him, as the psalmist goes on to later say, because he made the heavens. When we look to the heavens, this has been from time immemorial, we are moved with a sense of splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty. Even the pagans will look to the heavens and think, wow, we are insignificant and small. Sometimes in their rebellion, they use this to try to make the case that there must be alien life everywhere. Otherwise, we are so special. I have news for you. God has ordained a special revelation of his mercy and grace by blessing and favoring a particular people on this little planet in the vast scope of things to show forth what? Not insignificance or not proof that evolution exists, not the multiverse theory, not any other harebrained, worthless idol of man's imagination, but instead to demonstrate his splendor, his majesty, his strength, and his beauty. It is the Lord who's made the heavens. And there is some spiritual value in stargazing. You can look up to the skies and you can see evidence of the Lord's majesty. And we can't imagine the limits of what we see and that canopy overhead on a cloudless night. But one thing that we can recognize is this is testimony of the Lord's glory revealed in such way. And that author expounds on that later. So that was point number two. Psalm 96 instructs true worshipers to sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord all the earth, declare his glory among the nations. And number three, to ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. What does it mean to ascribe? It means think of an offering or a giving or granting or acknowledging. It's this, this attitude again of granting to the Lord, proclaiming, giving the glory to him. He is the one who is responsible for our salvation, for the glories of this world, for the origin of the universe, universe for his providential, or it, uh, for the providence that holds it all together. Ascribe to the Lord is the attitude. O families of the peoples is the amplitude. This is a message that is to go forth and to be recognized by all the families of the peoples. In this, we see under this heading a temple context. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And verse 8 continues, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. And here we have in the context, temple worship in view. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Perhaps three aspects, offering, courts, and the splendor of holiness that are pictures of the ceremonial worship of old. When a uh, faithful Jew would bring his offering into the temple. It was a statement of faith that God will supply a substitute. Remember the ram in the bush? So Isaac didn't need to be sacrificed. And remember the fulfillment in New Testament terms. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who is slain in our stead. And so what? when we remember these things, we are to ascribe to the Lord glory for supplying. Last week we had the bread and the wine before us. Kids, what do they represent? Bread and wine. 
Jesus' body and Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, which was what? Spilled and broken for us. That is the offering that is commemorated at the Lord's table. The offerings of old, the old temple order, they were anticipating that event. They were a symbol and a picture of an offering, a substitute to come. But now with New Testament clarity, we recognize that Psalm 96 prophesies <coughs> of a sufficient offering to come. An offering that will allow us to enter the courts of the Lord. Does anyone know what would happen to the high priest if he went into the Holy of Holies without, being proper, without properly preparing? He had to be washed. He had to wear the right clothing. What would happen to the high priest, young people, if he went into the Holy of Holies without taking those preparate precautions? Does anyone know? Judah? That's right, he would die. This was to show that without holiness, without the proper preparation, without the condition of man being addressed, that he is not worthy of the presence of God. Another story to illustrate, the Ark of the Covenant again, which this uh, psalm is associated with, is traveling from one town to another. I think the dude's name was Uzzah. The cart started to rock back and forth. And what did he do? He reached up to stable the Ark and instantly he was struck dead. <coughs> this illustrates <coughs> to us that you cannot enter the presence of the Lord. You cannot dwell in his courts unless there is an offering sufficient to cover your sin. You cannot do so. And furthermore, we see in verse 9, with this reference to the splendor of holiness, that refers to a washing, a cleansing, and a raiment, clothing, garments given to us that are pure, that are clean, that are washed. This was pictured in the old temple order, but that picture comes into fuller view in Christ. Jesus gives to us white robes, gloriously clean garments that make us presentable in the presence of the Lord, in His court. When you think of what the ark and the temple and the presence of the Lord, the Holy of Holies represented in the Old Testament form, think of the presence of the Lord in heaven or in the realms of glory or the new heaven and new earth. That is a sanctuary. And no one crosses the threshold of the court of the Lord into the new heavens and new earth unless they have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His uh, clothing them, his perfection and his works become their own. And without it, without being in Christ, without this reality, then we, uh, we cannot enter. And so we are adjured, we are called to tremble before him all the earth. Without these provisions, there is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no expectation of anything except eternal judgment, torment, punishment that we well deserve because of our sins. So these are things that we are to ascribe to the Lord. All the families of the earth, this is true of all of them, there is no family of the earth who can enter into the courts of the Lord outside of the once for all sacrifice, the only mediator between God and man. And this is why the amplitude of this message is worldwide. It has to go to all the families of the earth. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15 tell us, or as Paul is praying, he recognizes that the Lord is the one of whom all the families on the earth are named. In other words, Outside of him, there is no true and lasting identity. 
There is no hope in one's ethnicity, background, culture, any lesser identity. Those things are all secondary. But primary and determinative of our hope, who we are and our destiny is our relationship to the Lord. All the families of the earth, no matter who their parents were, they all descended from Adam after all, have to have a new family relationship in order to enter into the courts of the Lord. They have to be born of the second Adam, as it were, Jesus Christ. They have to be born again. And this is language that's worthy of trembling. Last, yesterday, uh, I was listening to a debate between a guy who's trying to reconstruct the teaching of Paul to try to say that everyone will eventually be saved. He thinks that the love of God is such that there really is no such thing as God's wrath in the sense that he will condemn anyone to hell. He can't conceive of that. As such, he is a heretic. He is outside the bounds of the clear teaching of Scripture. He was arguing with a man who was defending Paul in context, using a sound biblical hermeneutic, and they're going back and forth and interrupting each other, and it was passionate. It was an exchange back and forth for quite a while, 20 minutes, let's say. And then there was a turning point in the debate. And the guy who was defending the true teaching of Scripture, that God is a God to be trembled before, he said this, you know, let me tell you a story. Years ago, I was living any way I wanted to, and my brother thought I needed to be saved, and he was right. He took me to hear an evangelist, that evangelist opened up the scriptures to the story of Samson and he preached against sin. And he said that no sin will be tolerated in the eyes, in the presence of a holy God. It must be paid for. And the only payment is Christ's blood. And there is no other means of salvation. And if you do not place faith in that only means of salvation to wash away your sin, there is no hope for you. You will not be written in the hall of faith like Samson was in spite of his sin, no, you'll be condemned to hell. And as this man was telling his story, he said, I trembled. I heard a God of wrath. It was a scary message, but he said, I wasn't primarily moved because of fear. I was primarily moved because of the holiness of God. And I'm listening to this testimony and I'm moved by it. But then the turning point of the debate, he said, and you know who that preacher was? That was you. He said, I beg you to return to the gospel. He said, I am your spiritual son. I'm calling you to return to preach that the holiness of God requires a death for sin and there is no salvation outside of him. Boy, I paused the podcast. I went inside. I said, hon, can you pause the cooking for five minutes? I set it up for it and I played it and I said, you're going to hear this again by way of illustration. And of course, I couldn't resist but give it to you today. It moved me so. But what we see in that story is the acknowledgement of Psalm 96.9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. A God who is understood in his own self-disclosure as holy, as worthy of praise, who cannot, because of his nature, tolerate any stain or taint corruption, depravity in his presence, that is a God to be trembled before. That is a God when we hear his message, we should quake and then run for assurance to his name, which is a strong tower, to the name of Jesus Christ. We have reassurance. 
We have overflowing joy. We have an incredible hope in Christ, but it does not come without the realization that outside of those means is nothing but fearful, trembling, quaking in our boots, etc. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Finally, this morning, Psalm 96 instructs true worshipers to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Verses 10 through the end, 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, verse 10. Again, say the Lord reigns, that would be the attitude. The Lord reigns. His sovereignty is in control. This is His kingdom. We serve it as pleasure. Amplitude among the nations. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. There is a fixed order that cannot be altered, adjusted, will not accommodate the latest whims of culture, is not up for appeal or for rewriting. There is no redefinition of sexual identity by the current, you know, cockamamie ideas of a culture who is embracing its headlong de depravity in a sort of careening downward spiral fashion, the way the popular ideas of culture tell us and the news and all this pressure that comes. No, it, that is disorder. If anyone seeks to reinvent the nature of things and rearrange the created order and say that there is another law, another righteous rule, another moral authority whereby we can organize our affairs, I think we can do it by, I don't know, democratic consensus. What will you have? You will have a Tower of Babel, once again, that is built only to be judged. There is a coming of the Lord at the Tower of Babel, as we've read. There is a coming of the Lord that's celebrated at the end of this chapter because anything disorderly, Anything that claims a different standard whereby to organize themselves, to ensure their future, to glean hope, reassurance, God is a jealous God and he will not suffer that tower to stand. No, say to the nations, say among the nations, your constitution needs to be rewritten to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is sovereign over the United States of America. Your constitution needs to be rewritten, England. Jesus Christ is sovereign over the British or uh, whatever uh, Great Britain sending to other nations or whatever. You get the point. All the nations of the earth need to hear that the Lord reigns, that the world is established by him. It shall never be moved. The terms of order are not up for debate. They're not up for modification. They're not up for constitutional amendment. They're not up for appeal. There is no Supreme Court that can compete with the Lord of glory. He is the judge of the people and he does so with perfection and with equity. Therefore, we are to say among the nations, the Lord reigns, and it is his rule whereby you must acknowledge you fall short of his glory in your sin, and by his provision you can be saved, and you must walk in a manner worthy of your call, following that which God has ordered according to his word. Now, this song that Psalm 96 uh, represents, will so sing to the Lord a new song, the chorus is joined in verses 11 and 12 by nature itself. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. The chorus of nature joins the chorus of God's special revelation in his word, ascribing to him and yes, saying even among the nations, the Lord reigns. The vast reaches of the Amazon declare to the nation of Brazil that the Lord reigns. The dunes that are piled hundreds of feet in the air in the Saharan desert 
proclaim, I can't think of an African nation over there, shame on me, the Lord reigns. That touches the Sahara anyway. Some of you geography nerds can help me out with that. Suffice it to say, there is no place on this globe where the chorus of nature does not join with the testimony of God's word in sufficient proof that the creator exists. This is why Romans tells us that no one has an excuse when they stand before God because creation itself has testified to his existence. And you need only look through that window at the beautiful changing colors of fall to recognize there is a God in the heaven and he has ordered all things in history and his world to, re- to uh, display his splendor, his majesty, his strength, and his beauty. Thus we have the testimony of the heavens We have the preacher of the seas. We have the evangelist of the field. We have the missionary of the trees of the forest, if you will, speaking, although in limited measure, general revelation, testimony to the same chorus. And what is that chorus? That the Lord is the Lord of all the earth, that he is glorious among all the nations, that he is to be ascribed that glory among all the families of the people, and that he reigns over all. Finally, Psalm 96 closes with a coming judgment oracle with a prophecy that the Lord will come and he will judge rightly. 96.13, before the Lord, for he comes. This is, of course, speaking of the trees, singing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. There are two examples in biblical history of Psalm 96.13 becoming a reality to the peoples. The first is Jericho that I want to highlight. And the second is Nineveh. There was a period of time, 400 plus years, where the fullness of the, uh, the occupiers of Canaan, their wickedness was complete. And the God, as God had promised to Abraham... He sent in his people to occupy the land and to judge the wicked. And what happened when they came to the city of Jericho? What did, they, what did the priests take on their shoulders, kids? What were the priests carrying on their shoulders? An ark of the... Yes, and what did uh, they have in their hands? Trumpets. Yes, so we have here an expression of praise. We have the presence of the ark, which all relates to our text. And this was a coming of the Lord for the city of Jericho. What they did not realize, save one in the city and her family. Who is the one who is saved from Jericho and her family? Can anyone tell me her name? That's correct, Rahab. Before the Lord comes, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. And so you remember the instructions God gave Joshua. March around that city. And in so doing, what were they doing? They were singing to the Lord over this corner of the earth. They were declaring his glory among the nations, even the nation city, if you will, of Jericho. They were ascribing to the Lord uh, his glory to the families in that city. They were saying among the pagans that the Lord reigns. And they did not repent. So what happened, kids? The seventh day, I marched seven times and what happened? The walls came down, the city was annihilated and destroyed. Two examples of the admonition of Psalm 96 applied in biblical history. Jericho is the first that they did not tremble before the Lord. 
They laughed and jeered and trusted in their walls, their chariots, and their mighty fortress. And weren't they surprised on the seventh day when it all came tumbling down? And you better believe that the Lord showed himself glorious, did he not? We already talked about another false idol tumbling in his presence. When the Ark of the Covenant, that is the presence of the Lord, comes in contact with an idol, whether it be a city or a Dagon carving, you better believe they're both going to crumble. They both will fall because he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people, whether it's their war machine or their trinkets, are worthless idols. But then there's another story. And you guys remember this. We've covered the story of Jonah and Nineveh in recent days. Even against Jonah's preferences, the Ninevites heard the word of the Lord, the gospel preached, a pagan nation, a prophet that went forward to the tents of Japheth, if you will, to this coastland region, and proclaimed yet 30 days, was it? 40 days? Can't remember exact. And Nineveh will be destroyed. But what happened? From the king to the poorest among them, they trembled before the Lord. They believed that he had the power to dish out consequences for their sin. So they pled with tears and sackcloth and ashes and humiliation and repentance. We are sorry we have sinned against you. And so Jonah's message then was changed to one of forgiveness. Because upon their repentance and trust in the message, the gospel that went forth from the prophet, they repented and believed. The Jerichoites trusted in their city walls, and they were plundered and annihilated. The Ninevites repented and trembled before the Lord, who was proclaimed to them, proclaimed among the nations, and they were spared. And so we see Psalm 96 and its message playing out even in this record in history. Will it not play out again in ours? Yes, it will. What side will you stand on? Will you take refuge in the Jericho walls of our land that is so rebellious these days against the Lord? Or will you be among the few that are mocked and marginalized who take up the trumpet and represent the presence of the Lord now dwelling in his people and circle around the city of our pagan society and say, repent, because these walls are coming down. Maybe 400 years, but Jericho fell. Maybe 400 years, but if America does not repent, it will fall. We have that testimony. We know it will. And this is true for every nation. Let us pray that the church would remain faithful and strong. She would not compromise her message. She would be willing to be killed and persecuted for this truth. And let us pray that there might be an Ninevite moment, that people would once again tremble and quake, that times of fasting and prayer and penitence would sweep across our wicked land. And people will knock down their Dagons all by themselves. they take the hammer of God's word and destroy their idols that they love so much. And let us pray that this happens first in the household of God. If there's any areas in our own hearts whereby we have found refuge in things other than Him alone, may the Lord use this message to cause us to search our hearts. So when we go forth, we do so in the splendor of holiness, not with the compromise of idolatry. Amen? Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message of your holy word. We thank you for its power and its precision. We thank you that it cuts and discerns between that which is of flesh and spirit. And we pray that you would do so in our own hearts. We thank you for the message of Psalm 96, prophesying, proclaiming words for us to fulfill in our own calling as it relates to the Great Commission. 
May we be moved and inspired by them. And finally, we pray, we pray that you would use the means of your confessing church, however small, however limited in number it may be, to announce that there is a day of reckoning coming and we must repent and tremble before the Lord of glory and then take refuge in the salvation that he has provided through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. Thank you for this message. May we be found faithful proclaiming it to all the earth among the nations, to all the families of the earth, speaking unequivocally with authority and with boldness, the Lord reigns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.